This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In this podcast, we have explored several perspectives on how and why sport can be a part of good life and finding meaning. But today, we are going to ask whether sport can sometimes be an escape, a way to flee the absurdity of existence, and to find a false sense of meaning in a meaningless world. I'm delighted to have Professor John Cog from the University of Massachusetts Lowell discussing with me today. Professor Cog has written several books, including Hiking with Nietzsche, which is certainly interesting for our listeners. Today, we explore questions about meaning and value in sport, drawing partly on his recent essay titled How to Live with Dying. Welcome to the podcast, Professor John Cog, and thank you so much for finding the time for our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted we have this chance to discuss, and I already mentioned that I've also uh, shared this interest in Nietzsche's philosophy, and and I really enjoyed your book on hiking with Nietzsche. So just to kind of start with that, but I think for for today I would like to start with more recent work that you've done. So I read your short essay, "How to Live with Dying," where you write a very personal story of how you've been a runner for 20 years and how running almost killed you about a year ago. So let's start from this very powerful personal story that you share in that text and explore the role that running has played in in your life. Um, I think that the story is really one that many avid runners um, could probably tell, um, at least part of the story is. I mean, when I was young, Um, I was brought up in a fairly uh, controlling and conservative environment, um, and I took running as a way of actually laying claim to my life or the one thing that I alone could control and and exercise more generally as a way of uh, delimiting or creating a space for myself. Um, It was a way of escape, but also a way of reclaiming um, time and energy that um, I felt was being drained by other forces beyond my control. Um, and I i mean, when I started running in high school, um, it was just type of, it was a type of authentic experience that I, um, I claimed. And then I, I rode and swam in college. And that, what initially was a sort of authentic experience where I could be myself, uh, became more and more compulsive. 
And um, what I think we could explore a little bit today is the way that exercise um, can oftentimes uh, exist right on the brink between compulsion and uh, authentic experience. And I found myself tipping more often than not into the a sort of routine, a sort of habit, a sort of um, compulsive mania with my running, uh, which again, I think that many uh, competitive athletes probably could also identify with. And just to sort of fast forward, I'm now 41. And um, last year, I was on a treadmill and I would always lock the treadmill in at um, 704. Um, and I'd run for usually six, six to eight miles um, at that pace. But when I hopped off the treadmill last um, March, I um, did so and uh, I had to lay down on the gym floor and I went into what's called uh, VTAC, which is um, also known as the death beat. My heart uh, went into full cardiac arrest and I had to be sort of shocked back to life and uh, then taken to the emergency room. And um, I was diagnosed with what's known as an abnormal right coronary artery, which is the leading cause of sudden death in, in elite athletes, or one of the leading causes. And it turns out that I've been um, running on a heart that didn't quite work appropriately. And so um, the story that I told in the American Scholar, which is the essay that you referred to, is the um, realization that I had used running as a way to run away from life rather than to embrace it for a long time. And one thing with the cardiac arrest is that you don't have much time or you realize you don't have much time left. And uh, it's the reevaluation of life and um, a sort of, uh, you know, one of the questions that I had to ask in that moment was, uh, what was I running from and how should I reorient my life so that exercise and running could be a return to life rather than simply an escape? Yeah, it's such a powerful story and we will towards the end talk about your relationship with running then after all this this has happened but I think what you already started exploring and and what will be very nice for us to cover today is that when when does running or any sport become from this more life affirming activity to something that becomes somewhat obsession or or compulsion and we know that a lot of runners are very attached to their training schedule and adding more miles and you know achieving this pace and achieving that time in a five or 10k or whatever is the goal so yeah let's let's maybe start talking about that then so maybe just share a little bit of your thoughts about running as an activity that could be life affirming if we if we talk about Nietzsche for example whereas when do we get lost in our activities sure I mean this is I think one of the background or the background that we need to discuss a little bit is just um, human existence and the way that um, philosophers like Nietzsche or Albert Camus who I mentioned in the essay described human existence and these philosophers my the sort of philosophers that I gravitated toward through 
uh, my teens, my 20s, 30s, and now into my 40s, all of them sort of uh, grew up and came of age in the 19th century, um, 19th and 20th century, at a time when traditional forms of value and traditional ways of tapping meaning were becoming to, they were, they were slowly being seen as being outmoded or being largely meaningless. What I mean by this is when Friedrich Nietzsche um, in the second half of the 19th century says that God is dead, famously, Nietzsche is actually, he's not celebrating this fact. He's saying we have a massive problem in our, in our modern age. It is the fact that uh, the sort of forms of institutional meaning that we got from the church, that we got from education, that we got from politics, that we got from um, any type of religion or ideology, these forms of meaning no longer held sway, uh, no longer held real meaning. And Nietzsche um, in the 19th century was saying, in the absence of God or in the absence of these traditional forms of value, how do you form meaning? How do you structure your life? And I think that many runners um, are using running to structure their lives. And that can be both a boon or a benefit to their lives, but it can also be a way of um, masking the underlying void or the un underlying problem that Nietzsche was identifying. Namely, um, there is nothing like intrinsic value in the, in the universe. And what we do when we uh, fill our days with 20-mile runs or when we fill our days with these goals that we think that we need to pursue, um, we both create um, some sort of structure or meaning for our lives, but we can also lose track of the fact that um, our lives are precious and fragile and, um, and ephemeral and that they're fleeting. And I think that that's one of the things that Nietzsche's philosophy also wants us to take account of. Certainly it is the case also with uh, Camus and existentialism more generally in the 20th century. They want us to realize that our human lives are ones that should be composed of choice and that, that we have choices over the lives that we lead. And I think that a point where running or any type of exercise becomes a compulsion rather than an existentially valuable, you know, activity is when we no longer have choices over our lives and over the routines that we set for ourselves, that the routines themselves take on a life, life of their own. And that's a point where Nietzsche would be suspicious of our activity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you also talk in this essay about how your relationship with running changed in your life, as, as it certainly does in all of our lives who who have been runners for, for a longer period of time. I think it was really interesting at the beginning, you are mentioning these Lungkompa runners, like the Tibetan runners. I remember reading about them as a part of my travel reading when I been to Tibet about 10 years ago, I think. And and that has been uh, one inspiration for you. And, and I could relate to that. And we have all these popular books about like the Born to Run book when it came out. That was a massive running boom. And and there's a plenty of popular literature on running and meditation and mindfulness and even spirituality. 
So, yeah, mm. my question would be, is this part of why running is attracting so many people, that it is almost a superhuman or divine activity, as you put it in your essay? And yeah. is it uh, our way to strive for transcendence even? It's a sublime activity. I mean, running is a beautiful and sublime activity when it's done correctly, I think. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and one of the things that attracted me to uh, running is that when you reach a certain point in running and in a certain type of exercise, um, it also attracts me to yoga and yogic practices, your mind goes off. And for us with busy monkey minds, as the Buddhists might say, running is a type of meditation that allows your mind to simply go off. And you don't realize about the yards that you're covering or the miles that you're covering. They just go. And you are running, and that's all you are. You're not you're not thinking about other things. You're not thinking about you're not you're not preoccupied or expecting. Um, it's this type of uh, I mean, we describe it as a flow state, but it's um, it's any type of repetitive activity where you just immerse yourself. I sometimes ask my students, like, where do you find yourself? And they say, well, I find myself running or playing basketball or playing music. And then I say, where do you lose yourself? And strangely enough, they come up with the same types of explanations. And, right. so, and I think that that's um, finding yourself and losing yourself in those types of physical activities is a type of transcendence that is mystical. You know, it, I mean, in another, yeah. in another time, we would have called it religious mysticism, but uh, today we just call it running. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a very valuable um, exercise for individuals who are constantly on the clock um, in their normal everyday lives. I think running provides that type of respite. So when I was young, when I, and I mentioned that I grew up in a controlling environment, everything was calculated. My grades were calculated. The time of my swimming meets were calculated. Uh, the amount of you know food that I took in was calculated. And running was one of those things that um, I could just for a little while get away from that rat race and get away from the measuring. Mm -hmm. but, but strangely enough, um, you end up using the same type of measurement when it comes to running, if you fall into the sort of, uh, well, it has to be 704 at for six miles and you're 40 years old, or it has to be, you know, 632 for three miles when you're, you know, 54 or something. I mean, it, it, it has to be, it, when you end up using the same type of calculations and calculate cal calculating abilities to measure your running, uh, it, the transcendence sometimes simply drops out, at least in yeah. my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it's such a paradox that on the one hand, running is such a liberating activity. It's a way to experience freedom and some sense of transcendence, but at the same time, especially now that health technology and GPS watches and, and all these things are all over us, we are also often trapping ourselves to the metrics and and we let the watch tell us whether this was a good run or it was a bad run instead of how how we felt exactly i mean i think about this um article that i wrote for the point magazine it was called step count and i was running i think i was in san diego and i was running uh along the ocean and this woman passed me and 
she said to me, you should really get, uh, you should really get one of these smart watches. You should really get this. She was running fast and she passed me and she goes, how many steps have you taken? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't have a watch. I don't, I don't have one of those Fitbit things. And yeah. she's like, well, you should really get one. And then she just blew by me. She must've been going like six, 12 miles or something. She just blew by me. And, um, yeah. and I thought to myself, she was a beautiful runner, um, effortless, but at the yeah. same time, you could tell that she was hinged to her device, um, and checking her device at all times. And yeah. it's concerning that we allow our running to be drawn into that, I think. And you write in, in, in your essay that you've been a runner for 20 years. Did you, have you had these negotiations with, with, with the watch and with the technology or how are you of going course. to practice? Yeah. <laughs> of course I have. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I compete in triathlons and, um, I am, or I was very, very, uh, reverential of time and mm-hmm. mindful of the time that I spent uh, exercising and and I would take three and four hour they're called in triathlons they're called brick practices where you would do um, you know you would you would swim for an hour and then you would ride for three hours and um, what I discovered is that uh, I was so worried about those types of practices and how they went and whether I could get them in in a week. And what I discovered is that um, after my heart attacks and cardiac and cardiac arrest, is that I had been uh, sacrificing large parts of my life for the sake of those practices, um, and sacrificing, um, you know, certain things about my professional and personal lives. Uh, at the you know, I the um, sacrifices I was making for my athletic regimen was, uh, were pretty considerable. Um, and it took me, it took me really confronting death to really reorient myself to that, that, um, actuality. Mm. And in your essay, you are using Camus philosophy to explore some of these questions about <laughs> meaning and absurdity of existence. And, right. and in this podcast, we haven't talked about Camus yet. We've talked about Heidegger and Nietzsche and, Sartre to some extent. So maybe we can go through some of key ideas in Camus thinking and and what he meant with uh, myth of Sisyphus as well. That's the famous thing that most listeners have heard of. Yeah. I'd love that. Yeah, I'd love to. So, I mean, in the myth of Sisyphus, Camus opens this book uh, with a very famous and very disturbing first line. He says, there is but one serious philosophical question, and that is suicide. Whether to live or not to live is the primary question, and everything else after that, whether we live in four dimensions or six or philosophical, you know, very technical philosophical questions, everything else is just window dressing, or it's just we're secondary to this question of is life worth living and why. And uh, Camus said that we, when we ask that question, is life worth living, oftentimes we, um, we look to institutions like the ones that Nietzsche was saying are largely meaningless in the 19th century. We look to institutions to give us those answers about whether life is meaningful or not. 
So for example, I look to my priest or I look to my mother or father or I look to my spouse or I look to whoever. And Camus Camus says that those types of moves, uh, or I look to my routine or my habits or my regimen, right? Those types of moves uh, for Camus and for existentialists more generally simply don't work. What is most basic about us as human beings is that we live alone, that we that we die alone, that our choices are ours, um, and that we are, in Sartre, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre's words, condemned to be free. In other words, you have radical freedom over your life. Okay, you can live, you can take your life. It's up to you. And I think that um, Camus' philosophy was one that I learned when I was relatively young. Probably it was my one of my first readings in college. And what I used running to do was to structure my life. And I, I tried to, in some ways, uh, flee what Camus says is our existential condition, which is the absurd. Like Camus says that every single human life is uh, lived through, if we're honest, as the absurd. Now, usually we think about, and this is why his philosophy is called the philosophy of the absurd. Now, um, usually we think about absurdity as something extraordinary or weird or uncanny, something uh, out of the ordinary. And um, Camus says that we should understand our condition, the absurd condition of human beings, in a slightly different way. He describes the absurd as a divorce or a separation between human purposes and a perfectly indifferent universe. In other words, we as human beings have purposes, we have a desire, a deep desire to figure things out, but we live in a universe that couldn't give a damn, couldn't, doesn't care at all about our purposes. And that's a very disturbing thought for many in many people. Camus says we, we need to own up to it, though, because otherwise we give ourselves over to um, we give ourselves over to institutions and groups, the type that he was facing uh, during the rise of the Nazi regime, for example, that pretend to give our lives intrinsic value. Camus says there's no such thing as intrinsic value. He says that we are Sisyphus. Uh, which I'll talk about in a second. But he says, uh, we as human beings live in a meaningless world. That the only meaning that we could have in this world is what we give to it. And the task of life is to try to, in the end, he says, revolt against the absurd, which I'll describe if, if, um, if maybe you think the listeners would be interested. But maybe I'll stop there and let you um, let you poke me in terms of a thought or question. Yeah. So if we start with the starting point that the universe doesn't give a damn, so we we have all our purposes and our intentions, but actually none of them are <laughs> none of them really matter. Oh. And so, how are we going to figure our lives? What what's yeah. Yeah, are we just left sitting here and how can we commit to anything in in this world? Well, that's the task. 
I mean, that's the problem. So I mean, yeah. um, let let me give your and let let me give our listeners a little bit more of a sense of this absurdity. So Camus yeah. says, "Hey, we're really like Sisyphus." In other words, the um, ancient figure or the mythological figure who was condemned to push a boulder up a hill by the Greek gods. And then when Sisyphus gets his boulder to the top of the hill, uh, the boulder falls down again. Now, this, according to Camus, is the absurd condition. Um, And it's not like the rat race that we, you know, do every day at our jobs, right? That's not the absurd or our Sisyphean condition. The Sisyphean condition is Sisyphus has a purpose to push the boulder up the hill. And the universe is completely indifferent to those purposes. Namely, there is gravity that will always draw the boulder back down. Now, if we think about that in the context of our own unique individual lives, that is to say that um, we have purposes like forming a household, like staying healthy, like having a meaningful relationship. But in the end, the universe doesn't care at all about those projects. And in the end, those projects will come to naught. What I mean by that is your attempts to be healthy, we are destined for the grave. Like we're just going to be worm food. All right. Your, your attempts to form a household in the end, cosmically speaking, it's all going to be dust is uh, Camus' point. Now, many of my students, when I say that to them, are distraught, right? They think, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, this is such depressing philosophy, Dr. Keg. But Camus thinks that, um, Camus thinks that it's actually, A, honest to the human condition, and B, uh, liberating. Um, so uh, how does that work? Now, Camus thinks that um, when he's being brought up in um, or coming of age philosophically, when he's coming of age 1940s and watching the rise of fascism, he thinks that the organization of society, right, these, these organizations that pretend to give the universe meaning in some sort of lockstep way, you can think about uh, the way that any fascist regime uh, operates by way of giving its adherents or its members a sense of order by way or a sense of meaning by way of strict order. Uh, Camus thinks that these institutions that pretend to mask the absurd, you know, that try to mask our human condition, are two things. One, that they tend to be unjust, and there tend to be lots of sort of injustices committed on their behalf. And then no one is actually responsible. That's a, that's the first danger. The second danger is that if you give yourself over as an adherent to these types of systems or to these types of compulsive, unthinking ways, that you might get to the end of your life and discover that you haven't really lived. In other words, you haven't decided how to act, right? You've just been going through the motions like an automaton or a machine. Mm-hmm. And I think that Camus... It says, says that we need to own up to our absurd condition because it allows us to make choices for ourselves, uh, terrifying choices where we take absolute responsibility, 
but at least it's our lives that we're going to be living or trying to live in the face of the absurd. Um, now, one of the strangest parts that Camus you know, writes in The Myth of Sisyphus is where he says that we must imagine Sisyphus as being happy. Um, and I think that that's something that we should probably talk about and explore in reference to running. I also think that we can talk about the absurd in terms of running a little bit and a little bit more, because I think what Camus gives us is a way of thinking about our running practice, um, both as a potential form of what he calls philosophical suicide, but also in terms of what he calls revolt or an authentic way to respond to the absurd. Yeah. Again, so many ideas. So let's move on to the concept of philosophical suicide. What does Camus mean with that? Philosophical suicide is any type of... Um, he says that when you're faced with the absurd, namely our condition as being one of Sisyphus, where we live in a universe that is completely indifferent to our human purposes, many people get scared. And there is a way of fleeing the absurd, which is called philosophical suicide. Philosophical suicide is any form of action or thought in which we don't claim choice, liberty, or freedom over our actions. When we give ourselves over to the strict routines of modern life, and we live thoughtlessly, and we try to flee or escape the unsettling idea of the absurd, and I think that one of the, I mean, you can think about philosophical, philosophical suicide in many different ways. Think about the way, if you've ever had a friend who's in a marriage that is deeply unhappy, and you say to him or her, well, you should just leave. You know, you're free to do so. And then that friend says to you, well, I simply couldn't. That's philosophical suicide. It's a lie. In the start, we'll call it bad faith. But it's a lie about who we are as human beings, namely that we are free. And it's to say, I can't do it. I am stuck. I must continue the way that I am. And Camus says that um, many institutions, like religion, like insist that we must be a certain way. And Camus says that that's a form of what he calls philosophical suicide. So that's the, and maybe our listeners, and I certainly have, um, want to ask themselves, uh, how am I committing philosophical suicide? What about my life um, leads me to ignore the fact that I live the absurd condition, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say that it's not just religion or, no. for example, that would have like a rigid idea of how you should live your life, like university, exactly. career structures, all these things are certainly also giving you a very narrow idea of what is a good way of leading your professional life and what is not and and so forth and also in sport uh, there are certain goals certain projects that are more valued than than some others and runners are easily uh, kind of lured to the idea that you know running a marathon and this and that time is <laughs> what is success exactly and i mean if we think about the amount of time that it takes to be a competitive athlete and the amount of training, it, it really is an issue of orientation to that amount of time. It's must you do this or are you choosing to do it? And yeah. um, that's, that's the pivotal difference 
for uh, Camus, I think. Um, because athletics can be a form of revolt, which we'll get to in a second, which he thinks is an authentic experience. But um, the idea that my life will be meaningful if I run a sub three hour marathon, for example, or a sub two and a half hour marathon, uh, or uh, I mean, the idea that I would that my life would be meaningful if I won a triathlon or did an Ironman. Yeah, uh, this is a lie because it's not. It's Camus says you might do that, but then you you again you face the facts that all of us are going to end up with a cardiac arrest. Like all of us, cardiac arrest mm. just means that your heart stops and you don't want it to, but it's going to do it anyway. And, um, that's the, that's what the human condition is. Now I don't want you, I don't want our listeners to be bummed out too much, right? What I want is uh, the idea that, uh, that our lives are so precious and fleeting and fragile that we actually choose how to live, which means choose to do the marathon, right? Mm. Choose to train. Don't allow the training to dictate your life. You know, ask yourself, is this something I still want to do? Is this something that is giving my life routine meaning, right? Um, ask yourself. And I think that that's the difference for Camus. He's saying, be aware, be always conscious of the condition that we're in. Um, because no particular goal and no particular time is going to actually flip you over into some sort of, um, you're never going to wake up. I, and I mean, I know lots of competitive athletes who say that one of the saddest moments of their life is the day after a, um, a race where they've done very well. Right. And I can tell you that, I mean, from my experience, that is also the case because it's, because you realize that, oh, this isn't going to bring me lasting happiness. Now I have to look for another goal, right? Or another, I mean, it's a type of, um, it's a type of worship. And we all get to choose what we worship and where we tap meaning. But yeah. um, we also oftentimes forget about that choice when we're in the midst of it. Yeah, what you said about reaching that goal and, and the next day you have this blues i mean sports psychology researchers there's loads of work on like post-olympic blues and and the mental health issues that athletes might be facing right. after they had this big event that they trained for for a long time and then you end up having this sense of emptiness and, and disorientation and maybe even if you won maybe that's not exactly giving exactly. you satisfaction after all and, and even yeah. if you've, and even if especially when you've won at the highest levels because the question is where do you go from here yeah and and why do i not feel happier and i think that one of the reasons that camus says we don't feel happier is that we think that these things right that these discrete goals are going to deliver us to being some other type of person And we're always stuck with ourselves. And Ralph Waldo Emerson says, my giant goes with me wherever I go. Well, that's that's the case. I mean, you don't become somebody radically different. Like you don't become a god just by a, a t you know achieving some sort of goal. 
Um, transcendence is at best, I think, in the moment, in those types of flow states where um, you lose track of the miles that you're going or lose track of the time and where you're fully immersed uh, in the activity. Those, those, that's a type of transcendence that I think that Camus could at least get behind to some extent. And certainly Nietzsche could get behind it to some extent. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.